These days, many of my favorite souvenirs are the memories of great eating overseas. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we're taking our taste buds out for a little edible sightseeing. Just like Americans love their roast turkey and apple pie, we're exploring some of the culinary delicacies that Europeans treasure. We'll sample the local favorites in Paris and Madrid and discuss how you can enjoy these specialties in your travels. And a good Spanish friend shares his family recipe for killer sangria. I'll also chat with an Italian friend in Umbria to learn about a fall culinary ritual that gourmet eaters happily pay a fortune to enjoy. Roberto Becchi tells us about the excitement of the hunt for truffles and the great joy in eating truffles. And our traveling listeners get in on the conversation, sharing favorite and maybe not so favorite food experiences from their travels. We've reserved a place at the table for you as we give our palates a little dose of French, Italian, and Spanish cuisine. It's coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Are you getting hungry? Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today I'm joined by friends from Paris and Madrid to help us enjoy the top taste treats in their cities. Some dishes might have become a bit of a touristic cliché, but if you know where to go and how to order, they're still really delicious. And we'll eat offbeat, too. Care for a few pig's ears? We'll also travel to rural Italy and learn why so many gourmet eaters are following their dogs rummaging through the ravines at the crack of dawn. And we'd like you to weigh in on the edible highlights of your travels. Drop us an email to radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and travel is eating, and we're going to be eating right now in probably the best place on earth to be eating in France, specifically the grand capital of France, Paris. Parisian cuisine sort of brings together all the cuisines of France. And I've got a man sitting across the table from me who has, I think, enjoyed all those cuisines. He's an expert eater. He's a tour guide and a friend of ours for many years, helping guide Americans around his beautiful city of Paris, Arnaud Savignon. Arnaud, thanks for joining us. Hello, Rick. Thank you. <laughs> I wish it was lunchtime and I wish we were in Paris. Yeah, you're right. Does Paris have its own cuisine or does it combine the cuisines of France together? I think in Paris you can find actually everything you might imagine, you know, traditional cuisine, artistic cuisine or... Uh, Modern cuisine, anything, or even foreign cuisine, everything. When you invite somebody um, over to your house for a party, mm -hmm. when you go out shopping for this event, do you like to go to small open-air markets or supermarkets or hyper... you got these hypermarchés, these... No. What's uh, a hypermarché, first of all? A hypermarché, well, actually, it's more outside Paris, so you need a car to go there. So that's a suburban, yes, super, like really super huge place. A mega store would be called a hyper marché. Hypermarché, we call hypermarché. it in Hypermarché or supermarché. Downtown, do you have supermarkets? Uh, we have a few of them, but they're not as big as those uh, in the suburbs. Uh, I mean, they're you know human size, and uh, I mean, I go there quite often. I mean, probably I go there like once every other week for my big shopping, my big loading, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then every day, every other day, you know, on the way back from work, I stop by the little shop, by the baker, you know, by the uh, butcher. Let's talk about that. Because my feeling is, uh, in America, the dream is to have a big refrigerator and then yes. another one in the garage. Yeah. You know? So, and in, in France, my feeling is... People could have big refrigerators, but they'd rather have small refrigerators an excuse to drop by the market on the way home. Well, you know, we don't have space for a huge refrigerator, especially in Paris. You know, I, I live in a small apartment, two rooms, uh, 460 square feet. So I don't have space for that, right, definitely. And I want fresh foods. And you know what? It's also very relaxing when you come back from work. You don't go back to your house immediately. You stop by the shops. It's very good to uh, to forget about work, you know, and to to meet people, to say hello, and then you know them, and and they're nice, and and you feel like uh, oh, it's so nice. I want to buy his meat, and then this baker is so you know. So, He's so, so nice. I want yeah, to buy his meat. No, I like it's really that. true. And and then you come back with all those things, and then. You know, sometimes I don't even know what I'm going to cook with my friends. And on the way back from work in the metro, you know, it takes me 20 minutes and I just make it up the whole menu. And then I shop for really? this Really? You think about your menu on the metro. Yeah. You drop by the patisserie and the bakery and mm -hmm. the butcher on the way home. Yeah. And you have your friends. The meal kind of comes together. How yes. does wine enter into that? Do you actually uh, calculate the wine for what food you're serving? Um, you, you can, but you have to be an expert, which I am not. You just go for a good wine then? Yes, I would go for a good wine. I go to the wine merchant, you know, by the corner. I ask him for advice if I don't know, you know, what I want really. 
uh, I tell him, okay, I'm going to cook tonight in a blanket de veau, you know, so it's going to be mushroom, you know, veal, uh, kind of saucy thing. So what would you recommend? Uh, and then they ask me if I, I like a light or, you know, a full-bodied, okay. which region I would like. Hey, uh, when I was in Paris with my wife last year, we actually hired a, a, a pretty well-known cook. It was kind of expensive experience, but all mm-hmm. day we were with this expert chef, and she took us into the markets in the morning, and then we went back to her apartment in the afternoon, and we spent the entire afternoon preparing this meal, and then we ate it, and it was sort of a triumph. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. Oh, it's a great experience, and you can find out about this uh, just if you go on the web and Google, you know, Chef Paris Tourism or whatever. But the point was, we went into the markets, and you've got these incredible markets in Paris, and I learned a lot about the the quality, well, the concerns people have who are consuming the food, who are the shoppers, they want to know where the strawberries were grown. And uh, yes. is there a law that actually says you have to say what country they were grown uh, in? Yes, you have to put everything in writing. It has to be written, you know, where it comes from. Uh, yeah, it's very important. And then you want to buy your strawberry, either French or Spanish, you know, because, you know, they're very different. So uh, and according to the different season as well. You might want this one or this one. Depending on the season, French or yes. Spanish strawberries. Yes, like French strawberries is really, you know, in the summertime, you can find, you know, uh, Spanish strawberries in, What's more important? in the winter. What's more important to you, the Parisian, contributing to the French economy by buying local or going for whatever is tastiest during that month? Uh, for me, it's the taste. Really? So you'd send money to Spain to get better taste? If it is, uh, right. in that case, okay. I prefer actually the French strawberry, which are, you know, the sarriguette, much more flavored than the Spanish. They are good. They are yes. good. It's and when it comes to fish, it has to say if the fish was farmed or caught in the wild. Yes. Like, for example, Sibas, which is Lou de Mer, huh? it says uh, where if it's really farmed or directly come from the sea. So, of course, it's not the same taste. I'm talking with Arnaud Sauvignon, by the way, and Arnaud is a friend of mine who's a tour guide in Paris, and he was helping me make my public television TV series, and wow, to work with him in Paris was just great to have a local insider to make sure things went smoothly. But when we wanted to work through lunch... Ah, I do remember that. (laughs) That was bad style, wasn't it? Yes. uh, Tell me about lunch as far as, why can't you just hop in a taxi and have a sandwich? Oh my God, yes. You wanted me to uh, to eat in a sandwich, and I I remember I really got upset because, uh, and I said exactly in those words, I rather not eat than eating in a taxi, sitting down in 10 minutes. You said that, I remember, and I I thought, I'll eat anything now. I'm hungry, and i got to be somewhere in 15 minutes. This is sacred, uh, Rick. It's really, lunch is sacred in France. I think that's the closest thing you ever did to going on strike with me when we're working together. Yes. <laughs> the lunch is sacred. There's no work more important than it the lunch. Is, it is. In every country, you have different priorities. Explain just how the meals relate to each other. We don't eat much you know, at breakfast. I mean, I'm not the typical example because I have cereals and orange juice, whatever. Like, but Talk like, about well, the typical, uh, the, the, the typical guy you'll French, see with a baguette under a his arm. A typical friend could have, you know, a, a quick uh, coffee at home and probably a piece of bread with some jam and butter. Uh, orange juice, but that's that's about it. You know, it's very quick, and even sometimes I don't even have breakfast. Uh, so a little bit I of caffeine, a little bit of sugar, and you're yes, on your way. Yes, or tea, whatever. But really, I mean, right. the typical is coffee and, and a piece of bread. Lunch. Lunch is very important. That's I would say this is the major meal in the day. More than dinner. Uh, oh yes, because you know you you you. you in you, fact, you. lunch is called dîner, isn't it? Uh, lunch is called déjeuner. Déjeuner. Okay. And dinner is dîner. Though, back then, you know, the time of the 14th, for example, at Versailles, you would have déjeuner, breakfast, dîner, lunch, and souper, supper. Souper. So we changed that. Supper was souper. Souper. What word is that from? Does it Uh, mean soup? From the soup, Really? Because on the evening, you would have a soup. Supper comes from soup. Yeah, from soup. What is petit déjeuner? Petit déjeuner, uh, déjeuner means, in fact, you, you're breaking, you know, um, breaking the, the, fast, the fast, basically. Okay. So it's a small uh, breaking fast. The little breaking so of little, the fast. Yes, little breakfast. Le petit déjeuner. Petit déjeuner. Okay, so the lunch is the big meal in Paris. Yes, yes. And then the evening meal? It's mostly like, you know, you, uh, you do that at home. Uh, unless you have some friends for dinner, then you really cook for them. But, uh, you know, sometimes I don't even have dinner. It's so lunch really is. You make time for lunch. Yes, yeah. yes. And then that's the heavy An hour, meal. an hour and a half, you know, it's really important. It's is a, that changing now with a faster pace of life? Is there it, fast it is. food for lunch? You it go? is. Unfortunately, it is. You know, uh, I think with, uh, you know, globalization and everything. Yeah. You have uh, to compete. Yes, we have to compete, and we, we work more than we used to. And it's true that in Paris now we are more stressed than we used to be. Uh, you know, some of the so there's a battle of cultures here, and uh, it's tough is, to hold yes, on to the old yes. elegance of the old yes, age. Yes, it's true. I, I keep, you know, myself, you know, one hour for lunch, definitely. Yeah. I mean, because I notice in Paris, uh, like everywhere now, there's businessmen's lunches, where they're good but fast two-course lunches. It has to be good, yes. It and it can be. be a very good value. 
Absolutely. In yeah. fact, if you want to go to a very expensive, even a Michelin restaurant, a Michelin star restaurant, if you go at lunch and have the businessman's lunch, you can go to a very expensive fancy restaurant with a famous chef and eat quite reasonably at lunchtime, I think. Absolutely. The prices are very different, you know, from dinner to lunch. You know, like, for example, at dinner, you have a la carte and you really can choose each main course, you know, and it might be 30 euros for a main course. But at lunch, they have something very, you know, like a fixed price menu, which is very reasonable, even though the quality is really wonderful and it's yeah. a very good so that's a good, a good budget tip. Yes. And when you want the bill, if you've seen a lot of old movies, you snap your finger... And you uh, say, garçon. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. No, Rick. No, you don't. Garçon. Probably 10 years ago or 15 years ago, you would do that. But, uh, I mean, I'd rather not do that. I think it's very rude to call the waiter like that. Garçon means literally. A boy. <laughs> boy. Uh, you know, hey, boy, come on here. No, so this is really work. rude. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I would say, you know, if, I, if I'm calling the, the waiter, I'm, I would say, first I would say, monsieur. Because mo- most of the time it's, uh, it's, sure, it's a man. Madame. It could be a, a woman, but it's mostly men, really. And it's a career, that. isn't it? It is a full career, you know. Uh, I mean, waiters, is it's a job. They're not students doing that, you know, on their spare time. It's a full career. They are, you know, waiters for years and years and years. Are they paid properly, um, uh, like a living wage, or do they rely on tips? No, actually, they are paid. You know, when you go to a restaurant, you always have service included. I mean, this mm-hmm. is compulsory by French law. 15% is always included in the price you And that pay. goes to the owner of the restaurant or the service? That goes to the service. Really? So, I mean, for example, you, if you don't leave any tip, I mean, the, the waiter is going to be ser- I mean, going to be paid. They're going to be paid. And sure. So you're not starving a hardworking waiter by not no, tipping? No. Do you leave a restaurant with just leaving the little brown coins? Or? It's uh, kind of traditional to leave something like 5%, you know, okay. of, uh, of gratuity, as you call it. But in, in Paris and in France in general, tipping is not expected 10 15% or something? No, no. You know, sometimes I'm not happy at all with the waiter because... In Paris, sometimes you have uh, waiters who are really nasty. You don't know why, but that's the way they are. So I just don't leave anything, not even a coin. Right. That's to show that I'm really displeased with the service. Why would you be displeased? What would be an example of something? You know, uh, quick. Uh, quick? Isn't that interesting? In America, we tip more if it's quick. Well, no, not in France. You know, I told you that we need an hour, an hour and a half for lunch. So if you're, if you're done so eating by a half an hour, you got to go, what am I supposed to do? Sit I don't want to have a, a waiter behind you on my shoulder and tell me, okay, what do you want now? And say, excuse me, I've not chosen yet. So I'm with my friends, I'm talking, I'm having a break, you know, a pause because I have hard work this morning and I still have to carry on this afternoon. So you need to be slow. You know, you're, you're there for really enjoying the food and enjoying the conversation with your friends if you have a friend there. So what do you look for in a good restaurant? Um, something, you know, small, um, when you have, like, local people, mm-hmm. really, uh, for example, a at neighborhood lunchtime. Place, a neighborhood yeah, at lunchtime is very easy. If you see people, you know, with ties, you know, that they're locals, they're, like, people working in the neighborhood, so you know it's good. And uh, small, with a little menu, doesn't have to have a big selection, you know, lots of courses. I find a pattern. I think my top eight or ten restaurants in Paris are all the same pattern. They're mom-and-pop places with about ten tables. The husband or the wife cooks and the other one serves. Yes, And that's about what they can sustain. And that that seems to be the equation that works is uh, uh, the quality is good, the price is good. Uh, It's the neighborhood favorite. Most of the time, the smallest restaurants are really the best uh, because also you you get to know the, the people. Our conversation continues with Arnaud in a moment. And coming up, we tackle the truffles of Tuscany and tapas in Spain. We're eating our way through Europe today on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
We'll zero in on the flavors of Spain and Tuscany in a few minutes and share some of your emails about tasty memories from your travels. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking, by the way, with Arnaud Savignon. He's a friend of mine who is a tour guide in Paris. A lot of tourists are interested in all the clichetic cuisines, and I, I know that this may seem garish to you. Yes. But let's talk <laughs> about the, the sort of the um, okay, let's come obvious. To the point. <laughs> uh, every, everybody who wants to eat all of the obvious things in Paris, you can have the uh, escargot. Escargot, the snails, yes. And uh, what do you look for in escargot? What do you look for in escargot? What do you mean? Uh, how do you order that? In a certain kind of restaurant or any restaurant? Oh, no, you don't find that everywhere. I mean, it's true in Paris, you can find it quite frequently because Paris has lots of tourists and tourists love escargot. So you might find it easier in Paris than in the countryside, for so example. Escargot huh? is touristic. Uh, no, no, I'm not saying this, but uh, since in Paris we have lots of tourists and escargot mm. is a kind of you know traditional French snail, uh, snail thing, yeah. it's very often on the menus. Can people find snails just in their backyard and cook them up? No, that's Where not the way it is. You know, when I was young, uh, I'm from the south originally, from, from Toulon, and when I was young, when I was going on holidays for All Saints, uh, on a rainy day, we used to go out in the woods and pick up the mushrooms because they come out. Mushrooms, you know, when so it, when, you can uh, Sorry, mushrooms, snails. Snails, you did, actually. So okay. we used to pick them up, you know, when it was raining because yeah. they come out with the rain. Sure, like slugs And here. then with my grandmother, I used to cook them. And you cook them up with uh, garlic and... Do you want to know, really? No? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, first you have to, you know, to boil them. So you just throw them alive in a big casserole with uh, hot water. I mean, yeah. boiling water. Yeah. And uh, basically, you make them spit. That's the way we say in French. If you faire cracher, I know it's not very nice, but uh, you have a kind of a foam thing. I know it's very cruel. So they all spit and die in the boiling yes, water? they die. And then after that, they're cooked. And then, you know, you mix garlic with parsley. And then you fill that up. You know, into, you, you take the shell and you put the snail into the bottom of it. And you close the shell with the mix of the butter and the, okay. the garlic. And, and, Good homemade and escargot. And that's nice. go, yeah. And you have to eat the whole thing. Huh? Very often, people leave the butter which is inside. Uh-huh. You should eat. Oh, that's the best you know, part. Dip the sip, bread in there. Sip the shell. Sip it. Oh, I love uh-huh. it. And it's not vulgar to do that into a restaurant. Just sip the shell. And when people are in Paris, I know they want to have some onion soup. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about onion soup. Onion soup. Onion soup, you know, it's uh, well, it's something that I personally don't like. And you may know that. Uh, onion soup is something which is more in the winter. You know, we used to have a very big central market in the very center of Paris called Les Halles. Uh, Les Halles has been transferred in '69 to a huge market close to Orly Airport. And this market was, uh, you know, starting very early in the morning, like 7 o'clock in the morning. So all night long, uh, merchants were coming and bringing their uh, stuff, you know, there. So yeah. it basically, it was a whole activity at nighttime. So in the wintertime, it was kind of freezing in the area. Okay. So they would go to the neighborhood restaurant all around the market and eat onion soup to warm them up. So the famous Parisian onion soup, the soup d'oignon, right? Soup d'oignon. It soup is d'oignon. soup d'oignon. Soup d'oignon. Oh boy, <laughs> um, that's a, a winter thing, really. It is. So a winter only thing. a tourist would have it in the summer. Yes. All right. Yeah, all over Europe, it's funny because local people will sort of winch and, and and serve these things to people who eat them out of time. I was in Switzerland and I was going into a great fondue restaurant, mm-hmm. and only tourists were in there eating fondue because the Swiss eat their fondue in the winter, that's not the summer. That's true. Yeah, it's a winter dish, you Same know, because thing. it warms you up, really. Let's talk about. Raw hamburger. Steak tartare. Steak tartare. I love that. Is it is it safe to be eating raw hamburger? Yes, of course. I mean, it, it has to be safe. You know, I mean, eating raw meat, uh, I mean, you're taking the risk, basically. So it has to be a very good fresh meat. Uh, so you can rely on the restaurant to, to serve safe raw hamburger. Completely. And it's really a delight. That's now, is it just a, something to carry the spices or are you actually enjoying the meat? Um, it really is very important uh, what you put inside. And, uh, and what is that? It's, oh, you have a lot of things. You put some Tabasco, you put some ketchup, you put, you put some mustard, you know, like Dijon mustard, very oh, strong. Yeah. You put some onions, um, uh, yolk of an egg, uh, what else, capers. Wow. Um, I think that's about it. Is steak tartare the same or does every restaurant have its secret ingredients that makes it? Every unique? restaurant has a little secret. You know, when you ask for a steak tartare, you might have it served directly mixed up. Yeah. Some restaurants bring everything separately and mix it up in front of you. And some restaurants just bring you all the ingredients and you make it just yourself. You oh, I forgot the Worcestershire sauce. Wor- Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire. Very you, hard to I, say. I find to hear a Frenchman trying to <laughs> say it again. Worcestershire sauce. Something like that. <laughs> Forget it. Do you eat this any time of year? Any time of the year. I would rather eat it in the summertime because it's very fresh. Yeah. It's something that I eat when I'm really, really tired because it's very energetic. 
Really? Raw no, honestly, I mean, you have that. It's a mm-hmm. full meal, and you feel so great afterwards. It's very easy to digest. You know, to me, it was very tasty, but very rich, and I, I had a tough time eating a lot of it, but I enjoyed a little bit of it. I don't think it's so rich. No, it's not, you, have, uh, you have no problem eating a whole plate of it. It's not fattening. There's no. It's only like fresh and light things. All right, into steak it, tartare. So, so you yeah. think this is a, a safe thing for a tourist Completely. to try? Completely, especially in France. You know, after the mad cow disease, uh, yeah. which was a few years ago, and now every restaurants have to. We have to be able to track the cow basically. So okay. when you eat a steak, you basically know. You could even track the name of the cow which is in your plate. Is that right? Yes. And this is continuing even in this modern age. Even now, yes. Wow. When you go to a bachelor, you know where it comes from. I love the cheese course. Me and too. And this is uh, when you're done with your meal, uh, before you have a dessert, you have a cheese course. Not and you, always, of course. But, but you can. Yes, very often. And yes. I think, what is the uh, digestive purpose of a cheese course? You know, we say that uh, oh, we have a French expression, which is a meal without a cheese is like uh, a beautiful lady that misses an eye. Un repas sans fromage est comme une belle à qui il manque un oeil. Oh, a beautiful lady with only one eye. <laughs> Bring so me a cheese you course. You have to eat cheese, yes. <laughs> and then you have like four or five different kinds of cheese. Or even more sometimes, you know. Some people order their dessert, and I just like to finish my wine with cheese. Yes, or finish your cheese with your wine. When you're out of the wine, you order some more wine to finish the cheese. And then when you're out of cheese, you order some more wine. Well, more reverse. cheese to finish the wine. Yes, it's uh, a vicious it could circle. go forever. Oh, yes. Oh, a you wonderful know, Very cycle. often what we do as well in the wintertime, uh, when I invite some friends, we do only like a cheese meal. Right. So I buy, you know, 20 different cheese, wine, salad, some grapes, some nuts. I love that. And then you eat, you know, one after the other. It's uh, an exp- your, your mouth With is... With a good red wine. Good red wine, absolutely. Yeah. And a French baguette, a French and you baguette. And you, know, you should mm. see that the French people, when they come to the cheese, like at Christmas time, for example, you can eat a lot of things. At the moment they come to the cheese, you hear the mm, the ah, the oh my God. You know, all sorts of, um, of words Ecstasy. coming out. Ecstasy. Ecstasy completely. at the table. <laughs> Restaurateurs were telling me that they're not offering it as much as they used to because it's not very profitable because the cheese is so expensive. Have you noticed any change in that in the restaurants? I think also we eat less cheese than we used to. And it's to. just less heavy, right? It's a little yes, healthier not to yes. have all I would the say that's more the reason why. Um, it's a health trend. Yes, it's a health trend. I mean, myself, for example, I don't eat cheese as much as I used to right. before. But we like it. But we still love it. Cheese in France, there's a different cheese for every day of the year. Okay, earth. yes. Yeah. Now, the other thing Americans are a little stressed out about is their coffee. Most Americans like coffee with the meal. I know the Parisians like to have coffee after the meal. If you're in a restaurant and, and you ask for coffee with the meal, what will happen? I mean... Well, you can ask it uh, and still wait for it. You might have to ask it twice. If you really want your coffee with a meal... So if, if you're a waiter and I say, please, I want my coffee with the meal, you'll say... I think say, somehow they will forget it. I don't know why, but they... They just can't in their heart they, bring your coffee. I think it's, it's hard for them to serve it with your meal. I mean, so uh, say, we it will be sure, behind. And it will become after the meal. Yes. Not because they're mean, but because they... No, they because just, that's, that's the way it is, and I think they don't get it. So I it's just, best for Americans to wait and have their coffee yes, after the meal. I mean, if you don't get your coffee right away, I mean, don't be offended. Right. Uh, I don't think the service is bad. It's just because it's it's again their will. <laughs> or no, next time I'm in Paris, I'll give you a call. We'll go out for a nice lunch. And next time you come, you know, I really want you to have a dinner at home. That. I will cook you a real blanquette de veau. And we'll you will a, see I'm a specialist on this. We'll have a big cheese course? Yes, if you want. What kind of red wine? I uh, might actually have you try some wines from the Languedoc area. Languedoc, okay. Like Saint-Chignon or Corbière or, you know, Cotier co- de Nîmes. Coffee with the meal? Coffee, of course. I have a very nice machine at home. After the meal. <laughs> After the meal, definitely. <laughs> All right. Arnaud Savignol from Paris. Thank you very much for tempting our appetites. And welcome back to Paris whenever you want. All right. Merci bien. Au revoir. À bientôt. Au revoir. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm in the mood for truffles. And I've got on the phone a friend of mine from Siena in Italy. And uh, Roberto Becchi is a local tour guide, and he loves taking tourists and explorers hunting for truffles. Hi, Roberto. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Great, thanks. Um, I'm like a typical American. I don't know much about truffles except that they're very expensive. Tell me a little bit about truffles. Do Italians, for instance, uh, actually find them on their own, or do you just buy them in the market? Or what's the big deal with truffles? No, you cannot buy in the market. They actually, you need to have a license to hunt them. It's like any hunting, you know, license in a way. So you hunt, they're mushrooms. So a truffle, is a, it is a mushroom, huh? It is a mushroom, yes. It, it just uh, grows underground and near some roots of trees, like poplars, for example, or oak 
please. And how do you find the truffles? Well, you need to have a good dog. So you have to train a dog from when he's a little puppy. And every truffle hunter has a different system, which obviously they keep for themselves, in order to train the dogs to find the truffles. Are some people famously good for finding truffles? Absolutely. And there are some champion dogs wow. that can win prizes. And it's serious, and, serious money. Oh yeah. I mean, this, these truffles are expensive, aren't they? They're very expensive and depends on which type of truffle they can be more or less expensive and depends on the season. A, a good year, you find many truffles. The truffle not so expensive. In a year where you don't find many, uh, they all are very expensive. So is the cost determined by the rarity or the quality of the taste? Uh, the rarity and the quality, both, they are a factor. If you find a truffle, for example, in our area, we find a white truffle in the winter. Right. And this is the most expensive of all. Then in the spring, you have another truffle, which we call a marzolo or bianchetto, another way to call it. And that is a little bit less expensive. And then we have the cheapest of all <laughs> in the summer, and that's yeah. called scorzone. And it's black, it's not white. What is the price range on truffles, Roberto? Uh, it's hard to say, but they can go from $1,000 per uh, hectogram to 2000 What would it be per kilo? Uh, per kilo, it can be uh, as much as uh, $10,000. No. Yes. Come on. For the white, yeah. Really? Okay, go. but if, if I wanted to find in the market a good quality truffle and I want to buy 100 grams, that's a, about a quarter of a pound, what would I pay? Quarter of a pound? Yeah, hundred grams. A quarter of a pound, you can two hundred dollars. Two hundred dollars. Now, I would keep yes. that in my my kitchen, and I would just cut little bits of it when I'm cooking. Is that right? Well, you grate it. You grate it. You grate it. The white one, the white one, which is my favorite. Uh, you don't have to cook it. And you think it's worth eight hundred dollars a pound to eat these truffles? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I mean, uh, obviously, if you know the right person, you can buy it for less. Okay. Then, you know, it's not something that uh, you go to buy in a grocery store. You, you need to know the people that do the hunting and find the truffles. Tell me the beautiful quality truffle experience. If you go to your favorite restaurant in Siena, how does it taste? Oh, it, the best is with the linguine. You have some nice homemade linguine, and you ask for some white truffle that is shaved on the top ah. uh, with a little of mascarpone cheese. And that little bit of shaving on the top gives it a rich flavor, huh? Absolutely, absolutely. The white does not be to be cooked. The other varieties, you can cook it to uh, kind of enchant the flavor, but with a white one, not. When you're traveling, you should buy in restaurants food that's in season. Is there a season for truffles? Yes. When yes. is that? Uh, the white one is uh, from uh, November, late October, November, to uh, February, March. And, and the black is in the summer, and basically the whole summer. Meanwhile, the, the spring one is from March to June. And they have to be careful. The tourists have to be careful with oil. Sometimes you find truffle oil. And actually, inside, there is not much of truffle. Okay. It's like a flavor oil, but doesn't have truffle in it. <laughs> so what, is it, what does truffles do to the cost of an item on a menu in a good restaurant? Uh, a lot. You can say that uh, if it's a real white truffle, a dish of pasta can cost as much as uh, 30, 40 percent more. So you pay 15 euros for a dish of pasta, it would be 25 euros if it has white truffles. Uh, exactly. All exactly. right. Now, are truffles being, you know, uh, farmed out like a lot of fish and things uh, since they grow in the wild and everybody wants them and they're so expensive? Is it getting harder and harder to find them? No. No, it's not hard to find it, but we have to be very careful to protect it because they are very sensitive to chemicals. So we have to have agreements with the farmers so that they don't spray chemicals near where the truffles area are. So these truffle areas are mapped by the locals, wow. and we have these agreements with the farmers so that they will not be ruined. Now, how does the truffle culture in Italy compare to the truffle culture in France? Well, it's a parallel. Both in France and in Italy, they used to hunt truffle already in the Roman period. And then in the Middle Age, just the kings could have such a delicacy. 
the only difference was that uh, in France they used to use pigs for hunting, okay. and we use dogs all the time. Really? Yeah. So take me hunting in the morning for truffles. We'll have the dog. What do we do? Well, basically, we have to walk for a while, uh, going downhill into where all the water drainage of the field is. And uh, in that area where there's a lot of humidity is the best place to hunt. Okay, so in a ravine. And then you have to follow the dogs very carefully because if the dogs find a truffle, you need to rush there and stop him. Otherwise, you will eat it. Oh, that would be maddening. You find a great truffle and the dog eats it. Absolutely. And you, you can say that on 100 dogs that you train, just one will not do that. Wow. And if you find a dog that doesn't do that, that's a big value. There is even a market for dogs that are very good. Dog, dogs actually <laughs> like the truffles to eat them? They do because they are trained to like it. They are trained to love it. Oh. They associate truffle with food often. And also, every time they find one, you feed them. Okay, so you reward them if they find it but don't eat it. Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. But if they eat it, if they eat anything, you don't give him anything. Now, there's a little confusion for tourists because we see a lot of truffles in Europe, which are actually uh, chocolates filled with liqueurs. That's completely different, but they call those truffles. I know. They, they look like black, truffle, black truffles, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But when you go to Italy or France, you'll find truffles, and that's the mushroom gold for the uh, fine eater. What is the Italian word for truffle? Tartufo. Tartufo. Roberto Becchi, my tour guide friend from Siena in Italy. Mille grazie. Mille grazie to you. Ciao. Ciao. Sherry in Portland emails us about her favorite food on the road. Nearly 20 years ago, I lived in southern France. We'd go to the Boulangerie de la Nuit at midnight for fresh, hot croissants. I was lucky to be dating a Frenchman who had grown up in Montpellier, and when we were in town and up late enough, we'd take advantage of this little-known secret. My favorite, which I've never been able to duplicate, was the pan au chocolat. The chocolate waited like a little gem inside the flaky, buttery crust of the croissant. Eric from Hoboken, New Jersey writes, The best sandwich in France? A France meets North Africa combination of a baguette with spicy lamb sausage. It's my first meal when I get to Paris. The best condiment? French mayonnaise. It blows the U.S. mayonnaise out of the water. I always return with a bag full of the best drink, Schweppes Lemon Light. It's a soft drink available in supermarkets in France and Belgium, far superior to any American soda. In general, I'd advise travelers to spend more time in supermarkets while in foreign countries. They have lots of strange yet cool foods and help you stay on a budget. Eating tips from Eric in Hoboken, New Jersey. We'd like to hear about the food you remember from your travels. You can write us at radio at ricksteves.com. And you can follow up on today's conversations in our feedback forum. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Coming up next, the flavors and edible surprises of Spain, including a recipe for making your own sangria. It's travel and eating with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm hungry. Let's go to Spain and eat. I've got with me in my studio Carlos Galvin, who's a tour guide from Spain. And Carlos, uh, I guess you like to cook, too. I love to cook. You love yeah, to yeah. cook. I what wish I had more time to cook. All right. Well, I need to learn more about Spanish cuisine. Can you tell me, when we're talking about Spanish cuisine, what's important for a traveler to understand? I mean, you're coming out of France a lot of cases, and you know, you just think, well, France is the last word in, in good cooking. But you get down to Spain, and, and you're wowed by the diversity and the, and the fresh uh, produce and so on. What should we know? What should we look for? First, uh, there's a great diversity of uh, culinary traditions in Spain. We have great meats and great game and great seafood and fish. And Spain is the second uh, largest consumer of fish and seafood in the world. So look for seafood. Is it determined by what region of Spain you are, if you're the interior, the south coast, the northwest, the mountains? Yeah. The north and the northwest is great for seafood. And, and the seafood from the Cantabric Ocean it's one of the best, and, and mm. the seafood in Galicia. Actually, Galicia has a lot of uh, festivals. That's the northwest. Yeah, yeah. Galicia is in the northwest. Oh, yeah, man. I'm a budget traveler, and I, I tucked away my budget because, I, as you know, I'm addicted to barnacles. Percebish? How do you say that? <laughs> Percebish? Percebish. 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 And they're very expensive because it, you risk your life to get them, right? You've got, yeah. you've got a couple of divers that have to go in the most rough, rugged parts of the coastline to get these barnacles. So they're quite expensive. It's like $15 for a, a small plate of them, but, boy, they are delicious. Yeah, they 
they're, they're very good and people just don't understand how we pay so much money for that. But, but uh, they look like um, witches' fingers or something. They're just gross-looking things. But it's an example of getting out there and adventuring, you know. And a lot of the food is munchy food. You don't order it necessarily with a sit-down meal, but you order it at a bar with a beer or something. Yeah, and there's a great place in Madrid called Cervantes where you can sit in from the outside and you can just decide whether you want to try them or not. Now, had I not traveled with you, I would have never known about barnacles, Persebes. <laughs> how can a traveler uh, stumble onto these, uh, you know, exciting, memorable, and challenging bits of Spanish cuisine? I know. I, I take people in Madrid for a culinary tour, and, and they experience all these different things, and they're like, oh, my God, I, I could never believe that there's so much diversity in, in the uh, Spanish cuisine. And I think it's it's one of the things that travelers should remember, that you don't come to Spain and neglect the cuisine. It's almost like an insult to your travel experience, because we're a country with great culinary traditions and great products to try, whether you're in Galicia or in Andalusia in the south or in Catalonia in the northeast. And if you're in Madrid, you've got the best of all worlds. Yeah. I like to define Madrid as the New York of Spain. I all the say. cuisines come together. Yeah, exactly. Because Take all the me Ma- on a little pub, a pub crawl right now. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's go down uh, well, this, the street. Okay, we're going to go find? street at Chegaray, and I like to go to this place uh, called La Venencia. I take people there, and, and it's it's kind of a little bit like a dive, but it's a place with so much character. You see all these barrels uh, where they're still um, aging the different wines from uh, Sherry, from Jerez. So this bar is dedicated to the culture of Andalusia. So you do the tapas of Andalusia, like mojama, which is cured loin of um, tuna fish, or you do cecina, which is like a really good jamón, but it doesn't come from a pig, is cow prosciutto, huh. and it's delicious. So that would be Andalusia from southern Spain. Right. Take me then to a Galician bar in Madrid. We go to Galicia, and then we're hearing the bagpipes, and we see um, uh, all these different seafoods on the walls of the place with the octopus that is cooked in this copper pot, huge copper pot. And that's where uh, women throw the octopus and then they pull it. And with the scissors, they cut it off and put it in this uh, wooden plate and sprinkle some Spanish paprika pimenton with some sea salt. And what do I wash it down oil. with? Uh, and Rias Baixas wine, for sure. So local mean, wine, what's it called? Albariño. Okay. Now I'm in the mood for pig's ears. I want uh, some crunchy cartilage. Where do I go? Well, pig's ears, I mean, you got to go to La Oreja de Oro. It's in a street, Victoria, and, and uh, old Jaime is just the master there. He's just like masuing these pig's ears with all the marinated sauce, and then he, he just saute them, but he does it perfect. And, you know, I've taken people there who think I would never like a pig's ears, and they, they leave the place thinking, man, this is interesting, pig's and it's pretty good. When you go to a bar and it's got shells and paper all over the floor, that's a good sign. That's more character. That's where the locals hang out. Yeah. TV's yeah. on, there's bullfight going on. Yeah, and you have this great atmosphere, and, and the, the, the prawns are sizzling there in the barbecue. Yeah. Okay, now I am just uh, didn't want to go to bullfight, but I want to eat some bull. What do you, okay, what do you, you serve? Have, What's a bull specialty? Uh, bullock's specialty is the bull tail, mm-hmm. uh, rabo de toro. It's a little stew, or what uh, is it like? It's a stew, yeah. It's It uh, reminds a little bit like Boeuf Bourguignon in France. It's a very intense sauce with uh, wine, and you find it, uh, they cook it very well in Casa Patas. That's a flamenco club, but they also have a restaurant, and um, I think it's a great combination. You go for the uh, uh, bull tail, and then you go for some flamenco afterwards. And are there other parts of the bull that are for sale? Yeah, when you go to a bullfight, <laughs> you can find anything, including bull's testicles, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that was a leading question. You actually eat bull testicles. Oh, we eat everything. Do you really? It's disgusting people. Oh, uh, let's, <laughs> let's move on to something else. We were talking about jamón. Yeah. Jamón is almost like a religion in Spain. I mean, the Spanish people I know, they'll pay double for the different ham just to know that it came from happy pigs or whatever. What, what's the deal with jamón? Yeah, jamón is, is just a very old tradition of curing meats. In, in the times when people had to cure everything, whether it was fish or meats, jamón is prosciutto, and uh, we say jamón serrano, which means it's cured in the mountains, in the sierras, uh, the serrated mountains. That's where the cold, dry air helps to cure the jamón. After the pig has been slaughtered and salted, then you wash it out and then you hang it to dry for a number of months. Um, you have the the simplest one, which is the white one, and, and then the black hoof or the black pig one. That's the Iberico, jamón Iberico, and that's uh, you're going to pay ten times more, but it's mm. worth it because it's just marbled mm, fat and it's delicious bouquet of acorn. Those are black pigs that are fed with only with acorn. 
You talk about ham with a bouquet. It's like appreciating wine almost. Oh, uh, for, for Spanish people, a good jamón is, is just like the best wine. It's like a, a aged product that has so much character and so much work. Now, you see these romantic carving blocks where they've connected a ham hock and they carve it right off of the bone, you know. Is that something that people would have in their homes as an entire ham hock that they cut yeah, on? It's pretty traditional to have it at home because, uh, you know, come Christmas, you just you get a ham and, and you're carving it pretty much every day for your friends. And they and, would come in different qualities. Yeah. So, you know, if, if a certain friend has a, a good ham hock that they're cutting into, you, you're aware of that. Absolutely. Is that right? You see the acorn, then that's giving you a hint. <laughs> that's a bouquet of acorns. <laughs> All right. Hey, we're talking about Spanish cuisine with my friend Carlos Galvin. And Carlos is a tour guide in Madrid, helping Americans appreciate his culture. He's actually got an office and a website to help orient Americans as they come to Madrid and are ready to travel beyond. His website is latango.com. And uh, always you can get more specifics on our guests from our website at ricksteves.com. Carlos, when people are thinking about eating their way through Europe, you know, we love Italian cuisine and French cuisine is always top of the top and so on. And you get to Spain and uh, there's a little confusion even, I think, among Americans, at least with me, of Spanish culture uh, cuisine and Mexican cuisine because you got the language, the same language. But what what are the similarities and, and what should we know about Latin American cuisine that has Spanish names and Spanish cuisine? I mean, you're very right that sometimes people confuse the two, but uh, they're absolutely different. And people who are familiar with Europe, who have been to Spain before, they know that uh, you never find an enchilada or a um, Mexican taco or a burrito or anything other than in, in a Mexican restaurant in Madrid. So no enchiladas in Spanish no, cuisine? No, ensalada. We have ensalada, which is a oh, salad. ensalada, that's right. Sometimes I surprise people asking for, can I have an enchilada mixta? And I say, no, no, it's not enchilada mixta. It's ensalada mixta. <laughs> ensalada mixta. Well, it's confusing. And then to, to add to the confusion, there is a tortilla. Yeah. But that's completely different than a Mexican tortilla, right? Yeah, tortilla in Spain is a, a Spanish omelette is with a potato, with eggs. But you, you can also have uh, tortillas of uh, all kinds of things. From uh, Now, Mexican food is quite spicy. Would you say Spanish food is also spicy? Not really. Not Sp- really. Spanish okay. food is pretty simple in the sense that uh, the most important thing in Spanish cuisine is the raw material. People give a lot of importance to that, to have the best raw material. You are into that, aren't you? Like the uh, roast suckling pig. Absolutely. Now that's good raw material. Oh, yeah. I, I know Jose Maria very well, and he's taking me to the farms to see all the suckling pigs. And, Who's and Jose Maria? Jose Maria, is the, he's the master of the suckling pig in Spain. He's he a guy, is, there's one man, and his name's Jose Maria. Yeah, because he's worked so hard at improving the breed of these little uh, piglets. It's kind of sad to talk about it, but uh, they're slaughtered uh, three weeks into their lives. And uh, all they've eaten? Uh, it's milk. They, all they've had is mother's milk. Yeah, so they're, they're called uh, cycling pigs for that. And, and they're so tender and they're so delicious and crispy. And you can cut them with a plate. Oh, that's right. You There's know? that tradition yeah. of, to demonstrate how tender it is. They cut uh, it with a plate. Absolutely. My goodness. It's a little uh, politically incorrect. You've got to be prepared for it, but it's the experience when you Where go do you to get Segovia. The best? Segovia, huh? Yeah, Segovia, Segovia, Segovia is, the is the best for cycling pig. Oh, if you right. want to go for really good uh, suckling lamb, you go to Burgos. Sounds good. Take me to breakfast in Spain. Spain has different kinds of breakfast than we're used to. Yeah, breakfast is is not a big meal in Spain. The big meal in Spain is the lunch as opposed to dinner or breakfast. But breakfast in Spain is fun. When, like, for for example, chocolate con churros in, in Madrid. Uh, so these are greasy donuts that you dunk in your pudding-like chocolate. Uh, right, exactly. Mm. And, and you can have it for breakfast or in the afternoon. And, and it's delicious. It's just an experience that you cannot pass on while you're in Madrid. Uh, then when you head to the south, you're trying your uh, café con leche with a toast and olive oil. This is a really aromatic olive oil, extra virgin, the first cold-pressed olive oil with a little salt on your toast. Or you can have a spread, you know, uh, they, they have all kinds of a spread, and, and uh, oftentimes I, I have people try those spreads. One of the spreads is this tomato spread, right? Uh, well, uh, I don't want to get into the ingredients, Rick. Don't make me, <laughs> don't make me do that. <laughs> Now you have sometimes you have like kidney spread or uh, they're, they're fatty spreads, but they're so delicious. You know, even just to try them. I mean, uh, we can't we can't call them low fat, really. But you can't call them low fat. No, okay. You, um, you know, I think a phrase book would be very helpful for somebody who wants to eat their way through Spain. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think it's too sad to miss out 
on opportunities to try so many different things. And I think for people to go to markets, I always encourage people, hey, um, try restaurants, but try also markets. Go to a market and, and buy a little bit of everything and do your own picnic either at the hotel or in a park. Hmm. Remember, in Spain, it's okay to open an alcoholic beverage. I mean, it's not legal, but it's they never say anything if you're in a park. Oh, really? So it's, uh, it's legally you're not supposed to drink uh, alcohol in the park. Right, but you know people do it and, and, and they're, they're just fine with it. It's, so a glass of wine with your picnic, no problem. Yeah, as long as you, you're not laying in the lawn. <laughs> right, so as long as you have some dignity. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Spanish wines. Uh, what should we know to enjoy Spanish wines? I love that word Rioja. Isn't that pretty basic? Yeah, Rioja is one of the 69 or 65 regions of uh, Spanish wines and is the one that has internationally made it into the ranks. Uh, unfortunately, Spanish wine hasn't been discovered yet. I mean, it's, it's only now that the, the world is, is really knowing about Spanish wine in a massive way. In, you know, if you go to any gourmet shop in the U.S., you can find that they have Italy wine. They have so many yards of uh, storefront. But for Spanish wine, is either among all the wines of the world or there's just a tiny little shelf. Uh, Spain wines are very diverse. Spain is a great region for producing wine because it's, it has a very um, poor soil, but that's perfect for vineyards. And it has the perfect climate the climate of uh, of the plateau which is a very contrasted climate it's a continental climate very hot in the summer very cold in the winter which preserves the acidity of the wines do you get what you pay for if i want a good red wine in spain i just want to pay more and i'll get a, a better wine or how does that work what's what are the pitfalls uh, i think it's good to try the wine of the house oftentimes but i would also try to get something a little nicer um, like a crianza crianza means that it's been aging in oak uh, for so certain, on the label it will say crianza it's either crianza for 6 months to 12 months in oak and then uh, one year in the bottle or it's going to be reserva or gran reserva it's different denominations to specify how old the wine is. That is that good, better, and best than basically Crianza, Reserva, Grand Reserva? Uh, theoretically, yeah, because there are people who don't like the oaky flavor so much. Oh, so. okay. So it's a matter of taste also. Right, yeah. What about sangria? Is that just kind of cheap uh, wine spritzer, or is there a quality thing with sangria? No, sangria is a, it's a fun drink that uh, everybody consumes when you know in the hot season. It's hot in Spain in the summer, and you yeah. got sangria everywhere. A good sangria is the one you make, you know. Same here. Yeah, because everybody's recipe is different. And, and Oh, I see. It varies from uh, family from, to family. Yeah, or? absolutely. It's like a tortilla de patata. It's never the same. <laughs> if I came to visit you in the summer, what would you put in my sangria? Um, I would put red wine and I would put some uh, Fanta or a, a Sprite or a Casera, which is like a sparkling uh, type of a Sprite. And then I would throw a bunch of different fruits and I would leave the fruits macerating with the wine the day before so that all that scent and aroma from the fruit goes into the wine, and then when you mix it with the Sprite, it gives uh, a better flavor. And with the I Sprite? Would, yeah. So uh, let's do this for our listeners. We want to make a, a nice Carlos Sangria, even at home in the United States. Give us the recipe. Okay. Um, you you would put like uh, one-third of uh, wine. What kind of wine? Red wine. And it doesn't have to be a good wine. It any red just, wine uh, you like. Any, any red wine. And then two-thirds uh, where you mix... Uh, sprite and maybe a little bit of lemon, uh, lemon sprite uh, or lemonade. Lemonade or sprite or uh, both. Uh, both, a little bit of uh, so sprite, you, the pop. Sprite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All mm-hmm. right. Hmm. Uh, we have one sprite in Spain that is called Casera, but I don't think okay. you get that you here. Got a sprite here. Good. I think sprite is good. Yeah. Before I mix the two, the, the night before I would leave the wine macerating with uh, peaches. You can throw in. Um, orange and apple, all the fruits that you want, really. So whatever fruits you fancy, you put it in the wine before you mess it up with the Sprite. Exactly. And you let it soak for 24 hours? Yeah, maybe 24 hours and so that all the flavors mix together. So putting, aerating that wine for 24 hours, generally that would be a bad thing. Uh, Yeah. But in the case of sangria, it's no problem? Yeah, it's no problem, no. All right. So then you've got your nice soup of red wine and fruit. You pour in your lemonade and Sprite. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to put some ice, a little bit of cinnamon. Cinnamon. Yeah, I like to put cinnamon in, in cool. my sangria. And a little bit of sugar, you know, depending how okay. uh, sweet you want it. Uh, I don't like it too sweet because then, it, you know, you, can, you cannot drink very much. <laughs> and you got sangria de Carlos. Yeah. Carlos Calvin. Muchas gracias. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Gracias, Rick. Hasta pronto. Adios. So. Liz in Memphis emails us about her favorite food on the road, best food, is in the old part of San Sebastian in Spain. It has what must be the highest concentration of tapas bars anywhere in the world. Ordering is a delight. 
The honor system aspect really adds to the joy of the experience. At a typical and unassuming hole in the wall, they have things like seared foie gras with pear sauce, tiny blood sausage cannelloni, and crunchy cod tempura. Because there are tiny portions, you can try a bunch of different sigh-inducing dishes, and it was completely affordable, even for a college kid like me. That's Liz emailing us about her favorite food from Memphis. Melody emails us from Italy talking about her worst food experience. During my first trip to Madrid, Spain, the paella was sold out, so I tried cuttlefish on a friend's recommendation, even though she herself had never ordered it. We were all taken aback by the white, gelatinous blob of an entire boiled cuttlefish dangling over the edges of the plate. I managed to cut off a few pieces and force them down my throat, washing away the taste with gulps of local wine. Delizioso? No. And here's a story about a triumph for a family in a fine restaurant in Paris from Kathleen in Modesto, California. Is it possible to take younger children to a restaurant in Paris? One January, I traveled to Paris with six-year-old triplets. Your suggestions for eating out with children worked. The staff at the Hippopotamus Restaurant in Les Halles was so impressed by my children's behavior, they happily accommodated my request for ice cream, even though it wasn't on the children's menu. And they didn't even charge us for it. The only negative part of the experience was finishing up and paying l'addition at about 6.30 when an older woman and her 30-something nephew came in and were unhappy to see children in the restaurant, so they asked for a table as far away from Les Enfants as possible. As we finished the obligatory restroom stop and tried to leave as inconspicuously as possible, three of the waiters came running out to the children with balloons, thanking us for coming and all the while gushing about how well-behaved my children were, in full view of the woman who was so disturbed at seeing children in a restaurant. I took a picture of our three well-behaved children next to the hippopotamus sign on the sidewalk outside the restaurant and walked triumphantly as a well-fed family in Paris all the way to the Eiffel Tower. We'd enjoy hearing from you. Share your travel experiences and ideas with our community of travelers anytime you like on our website. Look for the radio section at ricksteves.com and submit your comments on any program we've done. We're travel partners, and you're more than welcome to join in on the discussion. I'm Rick Steves. Let's get together next week at this time on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.